All right, did you ever explain something to somebody and they totally misunderstood what you were saying? You, you tried maybe three or four times to get the message through and they just couldn't seem to get it. And actually, their conclusion was almost 100% opposite of what you were saying. I think the Apostle James, the little brother of the Lord Jesus, uh, felt the same way in some instances here. Fair to say that James chapter 2, verses 14 through 26, we're not going to cover it all tonight, is the most theologically uh, significant and debated portion of the entire book of James or of the letter of James. Remember, he's written to uh, people who were scattered about throughout the, throughout the Roman Empire. I kind of feel that's the way we are now. We're, we're kind of scattered about. And so he's, he's reminding us of some very, very important things. He's been talking a lot about faith and how faith guides our lives, yet it seems as we come, we've covered, you know, one and chapter one and half of chapter two, it, it seems like, you know, pretty straightforward what he was saying, but it also seems like a lot of people misunderstood him. Now, in the argument today, it's still pretty much the same. There's one side of the group of Christians that says, or they say they're Christians, says it's only faith that matters. It's only faith that matters. Don't, don't worry about anything else other than faith. To which other people would say, well, that's silly. Does that mean you can live however you live or do whatever you want and, and you don't care about people? So they tend to come on the other side and they say what really matters is good works and good deeds. And here's the interesting thing. If you're telling people that it's really about faith primarily, you're going to get a lot of pushback. But if you say you know, it's about good works and good deeds, a lot of people are going to embrace you in that. Everybody likes good works and likes, likes good deeds. Uh, James would look at those two extremes, and what would he say? I disagree with both. I disagree with both. Why? Because James doesn't separate them he correctly sees faith and works as working together in the life of a follower of Jesus. And the title of our message tonight is When Faith Isn't Working. When Faith Isn't Working. We said in earlier studies that James primarily, wanted, perhaps the first letter of the Bible written, if not the first, probably the second, but probably the first, that he got his teaching from the Old Testament, and he got his teaching from Jesus. And he knows that faith that's only in your head, it's only in your head, it's the only place where it really exists, and it hasn't changed you one bit, isn't really faith. Now, that is, let's be honest, that is often the knock on Bible-believing Christians. If you're here tonight with us, or whenever you're watching it, if you're not a Bible-believing Christian, we're we're glad that you're with us, and we hope that some of these things are going to be cleared up a bit for you. This is not an e the easiest of passages we're at tonight. But a lot of people say that Bible-believing Christians are all talk and no action, and many of them, believe it or not, incorrectly cite James. They'll use James to prove their point, saying you're all talk and, and no action. Now, sometimes they're right. James is teaching us that obedience to the Word of God is a necessary mark of an authentic Christian. Let's get a couple things straight. One is that the Word of God does not teach that works are added to faith. So he's not saying that you have faith and then you add some works in and you mix them together and you get heaven. That's how, that's how you get there. That's not what he's saying. Rather, what the apostles taught is that good works, deeds of compassion, deeds of love, thing, helping people, etc., are a byproduct of true faith, or what we call true saving faith. So you, you put your trust in Jesus. You know he has died for you, and you are grateful to him. You're motivated by grace to serve him. And so good deeds, serving the kingdom of God, are a byproduct of what Jesus has done for you. So what's the, what's the problem? 
the problem is when we think about good works a lot of times, that it is an outward conformity to things, to, to a religious system, to sacraments, could be to volunteering or helping out or something like that. And, and that outward conformity often masks what is missing in our lives or in someone's life, the inward reality of being what the Scripture calls a new creation in Christ. Now, James described this uh, inward reality to us earlier in the letter when he called it the implanted word which is able to save your soul. Now, this is going to be a shocking remark to some of you, but did you know that good works can actually hinder the implanted word which is able to save your soul. Now you say, how in the world? What? what are you picking on good works now? Well, you're crazy, Pastor Jim. What are, you, what are you talking about? You see, the reality is, is that many people are adding good works to a very weak faith. That's not good. Or many people are adding good works to a non-existent faith and they can't even see. A lot of people think, well, if I'm doing a good thing and I'm at a church, that's faith. That's what it means. If I, if I go out with a bunch of people and we're handing out granola bars on the corner of the, of the street and we're just telling people, hey, God bless you, have a great day. I mean, who doesn't like a free granola bar? But I mean, that doesn't, that doesn't necessarily mean that you have faith. Now, if we connect this to the previous section where we were talking about partiality and favoritism, it becomes interesting indeed. And we see it in a lot of people. Did you ever meet someone who's one way with some people and completely different with other people? Some of you have been around a long time. You know the story of a, a guy who came up to me after church one time and he said, Pastor Jim, I, I feel like I'm a phony at work. I said, what do you mean? He says, well, you know, here at church, I, I come and I, you know, I have my Bible and I'm taking notes and I'm talking with people and I, about Jesus and, you know, I'm actually volunteering here and, and, and I get, you know, throw a few shekels in the offering box. And I, 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 but when I go to work, I have a foul mouth. I go out drinking at lunchtime. I'm cheating the boss. I'm, I'm coming in late. I'm leaving early. I'm stealing time. I'm doing social media at work. I feel like I'm a phony at work. And to which I said to him, don't worry, you're not a phony at work. And he went, oh, thank you so much. I said, you're a phony here because what you are throughout the week is what you really are. Not very pastoral, I know. But it's very easy for us, if we're not careful, to be one way with one group of people and a different way with others. And James would say, that is a mark of a phony. Nice to some, nasty to others. Helpful to some, not helpful at all to others. James would say, you don't have the mark of a Christian. That makes this section that we're going to be in this week and next week so important in knowing what is true and what is saving faith. What it really is because Eternal life in heaven with God is at stake. Now, before we jump in, many people think and have often pitted them one against the other that James and the Apostle Paul disagree on how to receive the forgiveness of sins and eternal life. Notice I didn't say earn it. They dis Some people think they disagree on how to receive it how to get the adoption of God into God's family and how to make it to heaven. No, they don't disagree. They're coming at it from different angles, perhaps even at times writing to different audiences. Remember we said that when you're trying to learn about what's going on in the letters of the apostles, you have to really kind of figure out you know, the situations that they're writing to, and then we have to figure out the questions that are being asked by the people. James seems to be writing to people that maybe had fallen into what we call hyper-grace kind of thinking. And he's correcting them. 
they seem to think that it doesn't matter at all what is, in fact, going on in their lives and, and how they're living. But we'll go to a passage that we come back to over and over again. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8 through 10 says this, for by, and, and if you're a Christian, you have to know these, for by grace you have been saved through faith and not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. So you say, what, what's, what's, what's saves you? What's the gift? Saving, being saved, or faith? I always say yes. Verse 9. Not of works, lest anyone should boast. So it's not the good works that you do that give you the forgiveness of sins and eternal life. It's by grace, through faith, God's grace, God does the, the work, and you and I, we grab a hold of it by faith. But after we're saved by grace, look at verse 10. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And so now as we come to verse 14, James is talking about, really, he's talking about verse 10. He's really talking about how saving faith is revealed. He says this, What does it profit? Another version says, What good is it, my brethren, that would be people in the church, if someone says or someone claims he has faith but does not have works. Now, the way it's written, we're supposed to go, none. It doesn't do them any good. Can faith save him? We're supposed to go, no. Another version says, can that kind of faith save him? Is that right? Once again, James takes the gloves off and wants to challenge the people in the churches that he's writing to and all of us that are off in our thinking. One word of caution that when we're reading the Scripture is that the, sometimes there's different words or, or the same word is used in different contexts to say different things. Often when the Apostle Paul is using the word works, um, when he's making a point that works can't save, that would be Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. He's making that point, works can't save. James seems to be using it differently. He uses works or deeds done in obedience to God, done for things that were prepared for us in advance that we just read in Ephesians 2.10. Now, as we've seen already in James, um, works from James' perspective are not in being religious, but they are, remember we said that religion is not a word that's really highly spoken of in the Scripture, but James really is talking about deeds of mercy, or love in the life of a follower of Jesus. So I want to come to Galatians chapter 5, verse 6. I want to read it twice. The Apostle Paul says this, For in Christ Jesus neither circumcision nor uncircumcision avails anything but faith working through love. So let me, let me go a little bit slower. Uh, for in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision, what was circumcision? That was a religious rite for the Jews, nor uncircumcision avails anything. He says, neither one of those two things really count for anything. They don't really have any value. And then he says, what matters is, but, or another version says, only faith working through love. So faith what? Faith works but he's talking to people who don't think that faith works. James then poses a question to us. That faith can't save a guy, can he? I mean, a guy who, who doesn't really care about, you know, people. Can that faith save anyone? We, we might think of it in terms of, of action or an active faith. We might want to ask ourselves, does my life, does the way I live, 
do my actions reflect a true saving faith? In other words, is there concrete evidence of a dramatic change? Now, I know for some of you, you come from drug backgrounds, alcohol backgrounds. You don't do that anymore. That's pretty dramatic. Others of you, you're like, well, I was raised in the church. I don't, you know, I don't really fall into that category. But yet there's other things in your life that, if you're honest, have, have dramatically changed. You know, maybe you don't have quite the temper you used to. Or maybe you're more generous than you used to. Or maybe you're willing to give up your time than you used to. So really, is there concrete evidence that a dramatic change has taken place inside of the person? You might even ask, what does James even mean by faith? I think it's fair to say that clearly so far in the book of James, faith means full-on trust in Jesus Christ. That clearly agrees with the Apostle Paul in what being saved by faith alone means and its result. Being saved by faith is what gets us to heaven, but the result is a distinctive life. It is a life that is very lived very, very differently. And James wants us to see that people can say they have faith. People can claim they have faith. But clearly, he's saying, they don't. So just saying you have faith, we talk about a said faith versus a real faith. Just saying you have faith doesn't mean, in fact, that you have it. This is why the American church is straying from teaching of the Word of God. Now, what I mean by that is most churches use the Word of God, but they don't teach the Word of God. So there's a bunch of ideas they have, and then they throw some verses in to substantiate their ideas. But straying from teaching the Word of God is very dangerous for our souls. It robs us of the power of the Word and, and the clarity that God wants us to have on his word. And it has produced in America, under the banner of grace, an acceptance of what we refer to as nominal Christianity. So it's okay, we're saying, well, we're the people of grace. It's okay not to have what James, was, we said, refers to earlier, really, in, in spirit, as a full-on trust in Jesus Christ. When it comes to nominal Christianity, I have to be honest with you, perhaps with some of the exceptions of some of the stuff that we read about in 1 Corinthians, but he's pretty strong on the wording about how they need to stop living that way, that in the teaching of Jesus and the apostles, I re you really don't find nominal Christianity. You really don't find people saying, well, I'm saved, I'm just not walking with the Lord. You really don't find people saying that, well, some of us are mature and some of us are not. You don't really don't find them saying, well, some ha people have saving faith and other people have a different kind of faith. Now, I realize that you may be hearing all this and you'll be like, this is scary. And, and it should cause all of us to pause. Is my faith real or is my faith counterfeit? And, and realizing that's really the most important question of life. That, that's going to determine where you spend eternity. So if you don't have real faith tonight, please turn to God and put your trust in Jesus Christ. Confess your sins to him. Confess your, your phony faith to him, your nominal Christianity. Maybe you're just a church person and you're like, I know I'm really not following Jesus. So next then, James gives us what I might call kind of an absurd uh, illustration of counterfeit faith. Verse 15. If a brother or sister is naked, I don't necessarily know if that means that they're wandering around the streets with no clothes on. Perhaps they just uh, really don't have, maybe they don't have an overcoat or something like that. If a brother or sister is naked and destitute of daily food, another version says they're poorly clothed and locked uh, lacking in daily food. Let's just put it this way. They're desperate. They're desperate. 
verse 16, and one of you says to them, Depart in peace, be warmed and filled, but you do not give them the things which are needed for their body. You don't attend to their physical needs. What does it profit? Another version says, What good is it? And we're all supposed to go, None. I mean, that's, that's terrible. That is like so incredibly insensitive. Now, this could be an actual event that he was made aware of. We don't really know. But anyway, it, it, it could be just an illustration. Someone's desperate. And someone comes along. They know them. They know they're a brother or sister. They go to the same church even. And they see them and they say, Dude, man, I see how you're doing. You know, I wish you all the best. It's also the possible the language is saying here, may someone else take care of you. Uh, today, the language goes something like this. You should call the church. You should call the church. If that's the case, right, um, James is saying it's not the physical person that is the needy man in great peril. It's the spiritualizer. The person who's acting spiritual right now. Oh, uh, depart in peace, be warm and be filled. One Bible scholar put it this way. It's a religious cover for someone's failure to act. Basically, it's saying to someone, I'll pray you find food and clothing. When in reality, you have absolutely no intention of helping. When we first started the church here, uh, I had a back surgery a very, very long time ago from all the years of being a long-distance runner and, and being a truck driver. And I was outside and I was uh, on the snow removal team, and uh, a commercial for the snow removal team. And I was outside shoveling snow and an, a perfectly able-bodied young man pulled up in his SUV and says to me, and he stops, he goes, what are you doing out here shoveling snow? The service is about to start. And I said, well, we're very short-handed. And he said to me, oh, wow, you shouldn't be out here. Don't you have a really bad back? I said, it's not the greatest. I'm just, you know, I'm careful, I'm careful. And he said, oh, wow. And he said, I'll make sure I pray more people sign up for the snow removal team. <laughs> and this verse was clanging in my head <laughs> that he was telling me, you know, be warm and be filled, but I have no intention of getting out of my nice warm car and picking up a shovel. You see, what, what, has, what has happened? Why is it more dangerous for the spiritualizer? Because their lack of saving faith has produced in them one of the great blindnesses of people who attend church. What is that? That God gives the people of God, abilities, gifts, and resources to support the church, to fund the church, and to help individual people in the church. Do you know, I've had people come to me and they say, you know, I really want to help so-and-so, but, you know, they need like 50 bucks, but I won't get a tax deduction if I do. Shame on you. Shame, 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 shame on you. God has blessed us with resources to be able to spread them around to his people. Yet this person sees the need and consciously chooses inaction. What's James's point? That is a sign of an empty heart. That is a sign of an empty faith. That is a sign of a faith that is phony, that is not real. Now, here's the, here's the problem that we have in the church in America, and unfortunately, we export it to a lot of people. People go, oh, no, 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 no. Wait a minute, Pastor Jim. That's your job. That's not my job. That's your job. Well, Ephesians chapter 4, verse 12 the Apostle Paul tells us why God gave pastors to the church. Now, I always say to the people here, you got the booby prize. I'm really sorry for that. But 
This is why God gave pastors to the church, Ephesians 4.12, for the equipping of the saints to equip the people in the church for the work of ministry. To equip the people in the church, some versions say for service, for the edifying or the building up of the body of Christ. In other words, we come here and the word of God is taught, not used. It is taught to equip the people in the church for the work of the church, the work of the kingdom, the work of the ministry, service to God and others for the building up of the body of Christ. Now, that doesn't mean that we're always recipients of people helping us. We also have to turn around and try and help someone else. That doesn't mean that you always have to be someone who's helping people. Sometimes people are going to help you. My wife always tells me I'm the worst guy on the face of planet Earth for allowing other people to help me. So everybody just gives me Starbucks gift cards, so I have a lot of coffee to keep going and going and keep doing stuff. But, but we are to help one another. And so I believe that the words of both James and the Apostle Paul are meant to shake us up. They are not in disagreement. Often the Apostle Paul is talking about the kind of faith that God uses in our salvation. And some people say, well, then that makes faith sound like a work. No, faith is a response to what God has already done for you in the person of Jesus Christ. And so he uses faith. And whether you think that salvation comes before faith or faith comes before salvation, you can go to the diner tonight, maybe. You can go to the diner tonight and, and talk about that, and you will not come up to, you'll not be able to solve that 2,000-year argument. But I will tell you this, you do have to believe. No matter when the timing is, you do have to have faith and trust in Jesus Christ. While James is talking more about what happens after you've come to that point, Paul's talking about the internal faith. James is talking about the internal faith worked outward. To clarify it even further, you could say that James is talking about both kinds of faith. He's talking about saving faith that works itself out and phony faith, a false view of faith that thinks they can work their way to heaven. Now, some people will come along and say, well, I like to follow the Apostle Paul. He's the gospel of grace. And obedience, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter at all. We call that antinomianism, anti-law. doesn't matter at all. Well, let's see what the Apostle Paul has to say. Romans 2, 13. For not the hearers of the law are just in the sight of God or, or righteous before God, but the doers of the law will be justified. Will be, those will be the people that will be declared righteous. J.B. Phillips' paraphrase puts it this way. Is it not familiarity with the law that justifies a man in the sight of God? It's not familiarity, sorry, with, with the law that justifies a man in the sight of God, but obedience to it. When God sees our obedient heart, he sees someone who is truly one of his children. This is a very direct commentary on much of church life. A lot of people come to church late. They leave during the last song or they, or they leave early. And they miss the point of all of the one another's that are in the Bible. To love one another, to help one another. There's like 40 or 50 or 60 of them. I forget the exact number of them. There's, there is tons of them. So for somebody to say, I just go to church and I leave, that should be cause for concern. That should be a cause for big concern. Some people, I watch them in our church, I love watching them because like, the service is over and they're like, they're like hunting dogs, like, who can I help? Who can I bless? I, mean, I really love watching people like that. Other people, 
they're more quiet about it and they're, they're, they're coming in early, they're setting up stuff. I never have to ever concern myself. I wonder if they're going to show. They, they're not like that. They're, 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 you can depend on them because they're serving, they're serving God. You know, in, in sports we talk about, we say, oh, well, they talk a good game. There's a lot of people who claim to be Christians who talk a game. It, in church it's people who say that they're serving the Lord, but they're not. They say they're generous, but they're not. They say they, they love people, but they don't show it. Or maybe they only show it to a select few. And they have the sin of favoritism, which we have looked at. Very interesting. The early church was known for some oddities, which put them at opposite ends of the spectrum from the culture. In the Roman culture, people were known for being very generous with their bodies and being very stingy with their money. The exact opposite was true of the early church. They were known for being stingy with their bodies and generous with their money, generous with their good deeds. Why? Because many of them had a true, living, and active faith. You know, I've been thinking a lot about politics lately. I guess we all have been. And I hope that more Christian people go into politics. I, I really, really do. Because an active, helping faith is really needed in our political system. You know, you just think that, I know a lot of people say, well, the church should do this and the church should do that. But look at all the money that the government wastes. And we need people that are going to be in politics to hold the government accountable for all the money they have. We give the government so much money and there's so much waste. Do you ever, do you ever go to a road, they're doing road work, and you go back eight years later and they're still working on the same piece of road? I'm not picking on the guys working on the road. Maybe they changed the design 15 times. I don't know. But there's so much waste and so we want to be really even writing to our politicians and saying, listen, you know, I know there's a lot of, I pay a lot of money in property taxes. You know, why can't kids read? Or, or, or why, why is this the situation? Or why is there people, you know, who don't seem to have enough? And so we really want to start leaning on people for the, for the vast resources God has made available in this world. Verse 17 is sort of a, a the way he's doing this is sort of a summary and a conclusion. He begins to look forward. He says, thus also... Faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. I mean, that's really blunt. I mean, he says simply and directly, if faith has no works, if it has no action, if it has no deeds, if you're not living a generous Christian life, and I'm not just talking about money, I'm talking about time, I'm talking about other different ways you can help people, all of those things together. He says, if that doesn't characterize you, if you don't have an active faith, it's a dead faith. Now, some people, you might be sitting at home and you're saying, I I'm older. I can't really get around. I can't really do anything. Pray. Call a friend. Encourage someone. Have active faith. You know, it's nice. I get a lot of cards from people. The next time you go to send me a card, do me a favor, send it to somebody else. I, I won't be hurt. I won't even know. <laughs> but send it to somebody else. Some people in our church have great card writing ministries. Maybe you think, well, are there any other people I could write to? We write into us. We'll give you some people you could write to. Just to let them know that you, that you care. That's what I meant that when I said that James is talking about two kinds of faith. He's talking about a living faith and a dead faith. And he wants us to see that a true living faith includes good works and faith without works is a dead faith. Jesus said this, Matthew 7, 17, Even so, every good tree or every healthy tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree or a diseased tree bears bad fruit. Once again, we have to consider, as we go through James, the difference between the Apostle Paul and James. And even what they mean in terms of good works is key. A lot of times, and, and 
this is not always true, but a lot of times the Apostle Paul, when he's talking about works, he's talking about works of the law, like circumcision. James, though, seems to be talking about different types of works, such as love and caring. Now, they're both part of God's law. One is more ceremonial and one is more practical. But James is directing us into the practical. The Apostle Paul often is talking about religious rites that were designed not to be end and of themselves, but they were designed to point us to the Savior God. James talks about the results of when we have met this Savior God, of when we have trusted in this Savior God. The Apostle Paul has taught many places that, that pre-conversion good works don't count for anything. While James teaches that post-conversion good works do count and they are an evidence of a changed life. Now, once again, when we talk about hyper-grace Christians, hyper-grace Christians, what do they say? Stuff like this. Well, it really doesn't matter how you live because God forgives all your sins, past, present, and future anyway. Really? Okay. Just think about what, what, what that says about how you really feel about God. It was like I, I said, you know, Pam, I, my beloved Pam has forgiven me a lot of sins. There's no need for all of you to yell amen right now. She's forgiven me of a lot of sins, past, present, and there will be plenty in the future. Is that a reason for me to, just to sin? I mean, can I really go around saying, well, you know, I'm going to go do this sin because I know she'll forgive me and I really do love her. I don't really think it works that way. And, and, and when we're thinking so cavalier about sin, what are we saying about what Jesus did on the cross for us? When it doesn't really seem to matter to us. And so hyper-grace people say it doesn't really matter how you live. Jesus is going to forgive us anyway. You see, what they do is they detach holiness from the Christian life. And they detach good works from the Christian life. Because good works are done out of faith. And why? Notice here, James presents their faith as dead. Not weak. Not struggling, as we like to say. No, he says they are without the forgiveness of sins and they're without eternal life. How is that possible? He says it right here. Faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. It's not alive. It is inwardly dead. The Spirit of God has not brought life into your heart. James is not saying have faith or works. That's what some people say. So, so you, you, know, you, just, I, you got faith, I got works. Now, are there people with different measures of different things? Yes, there are. So he's not, but he's not saying have faith or works. He is saying that a defective faith, a dead faith, has no works, but a true faith does. So what's the application in this day and age for the church? There's many. Let's say someone is unemployed. What could you do? You could offer to help. There's a variety of ways. Don't enable them, but offer to help. You say, Pastor Jim, duh. <laughs> like, come on. Not really, duh. Because that's not what most people do. What do most people do? They go, the Lord will provide, and they move on. But you see, what is that? That's, you know, hope you get some clothes. Hope you get some food. Hope you stay warm. That's, that's really kind of the same thing. You know, that might be true for us, that we're saying those stuff to people. And, and when we say this stuff to people like, the Lord will provide, and we move on. What do we discount? We discount that we might be the provision. 
Now, sometimes you are the provision and sometimes you're not. And it's very difficult. And you have to think, am I enabling someone in this kind of stuff? But sometimes you are the provision. Maybe someone you know is scheduled to serve at church. It's a Saturday night. And they send you a text and say, man, I'm, I'm really not, I'm not feeling up to it. Um, and I got some sort of a fever. I got a stomach bug or, or something like that. Or I got a family emergency or something like that. So what do you do? You cover for them. You cover for them. Hey, don't worry about it. Well, I'll cover for you sometime. Don't worry about it, man. I got this. Just go take care of what you got to take care of. Sleep late. I'll let everybody know that I'm going to cover for you and don't worry about it. Or maybe a single mom. Single mom is sick. What do people say? Get some rest. We're praying for you. Okay. Well, who's going to feed the kids? How about offering some real tangible help? Bring over a meal. Pick up a broom. Clean the kitchen. You know, there's a lot of people say stuff like this to me, like, I could never do what you do. I just don't, I just, I never, I could never do what you do, Pastor Jim. And you know, I, I find myself saying over and over again, I go, but I could never do what you can do. And that's what makes the body of Christ beautiful. Gosh, if I go over and cook a meal for a single mom and her family, they'll all be in the ER, right? I'm t- I can't do that. Nobody eats anything I cook. I don't even eat anything I cook. But that's what makes the body of Christ beautiful. Galatians 6.10, the Apostle Paul says, Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all, especially to those who are of the household of faith. Some versions say especially to those who are of the family of believers. But here's where we have to be really careful, loved ones. Really, really careful. A lot of people would say, I do this, I do this. But do you only do it for people you know? Or are you looking to do it for people you don't know? You see, that's what he's talking about. A lot of times we we will help the people we know. But what about the people we don't know? You know, it's easy to send a text to people. How are you feeling? Faith that works cooks a meal, cleans a house, cuts the lawn, rakes the leaves, cuts the firewood, pays an electric bill, does a lot of different things without having to be seen by people. Here's the thing. You don't have to do everything. You don't. But we all have to do something. Because the whole system's just not going to work if just a few people are doing everything. They're eventually just not going to be able to cover all of, all of the needs. That's God's design for the church. That we would be a family, that we would all do it together. Now, now you might not like this, you might say, this book of James, man, call me when it's over. I, can't, I want to get out of this thing, man. But when people, and this is going to sound harsh, I know it. But when people have needs, control your tongue and instead think about ways you could help. Don't say, hey, man, God will provide. Don't immediately pop out of your mouth, oh, I'm sure it's going to work out. Don't say, oh, immediately you got to have faith. Maybe you just need to say, is there any way I can help? Is there any way I could help? And you would be amazed. Sometimes it's a, it's a simple little thing that you could do. And you get back in your car and you're like, my goodness, God just used me. God just used me to help somebody in, this, in the family. Well, maybe you still object. Verse 18. He says, But someone will say, You have faith and I have works. 
So, so they, they, they seem to be, you know, reasoning that they're separate things and they're equally valid aspects of people's faith. Now, but James is not arguing that you have one or the other. He's arguing how they both work together. And he challenges that thinking. He says, show me your faith without your works and I will show you my faith by my works. I'll show you my faith by the way I do what I do, by the way I live how I live. James' point is faith cannot be separated from action. Faith greatly influences and empowers our actions. In other words, what he's saying is the faith that is in us will be made visible by our actions. And, and here's the sad truth. Imagine when he says, you have faith. You say you have faith. Imagine if he's talking to a whole church. A whole church where, where you know, just a bunch of pious, pompous people are walking around saying, well, we have faith. We have faith. Nobody's helping anybody. And people are just leaving because they feel forgotten. That's why people say to me all the time, you know, stuff, some, something I can do to help you. And I'm like, could I give you a few people to call? Could I give you a few people to contact? Because I just can't get to everybody. Really, my life is often ab absorbed in more of the emergency type situations. And there's lots of them. We don't put them up on the screen. Hey, yeah. So-and-so, look what happened this week. Man, they got to get it together, don't they? We don't do that. But sometimes people just want to know. Remember, it's a grace marker. Just for someone to know that someone cares because when someone cares, it often equates to God caring. It could be an outspoken opponent. Even someone who's going around saying, well, the church should do something about it, but they won't. But dude, we are the church. The church is the people of God. It's not a building. And people all the time going, I go to church. I mean, what do you mean you go to church? You don't go to church. You either are the church or you're not the church. Once again, James's point is that true faith results in a changed life, a changed heart, in actions of mercy and actions of compassion. Verse 19, he says, You believe there is one God. You know, all the Jews believe that. It's in the Old Testament. He goes, you do well. I think that's sanctified sarcasm. <laughs> like, well, good for you. Like, we believe in one God. We're not like these pagans out here. Believe in multiple gods. And he's like, well, good for you. Good for you. So they have good theology, but they seem to be puffed up about it. You believe in God. You believe that there is one God. You do well. Even the demons believe and tremble. Now, why would he say that? Why would he compare people in the church who have great theology to a bunch of demons? Honestly, because neither one of them is their faith genuine. Good theology does not make your faith genuine. Now, it's good to have good theology. That is something I work very, very hard at once had a, had a um, seminary professor who taught preaching come here and he, and he said to me, you are very good at teaching good theology but not labeling it as so. So I, I try very, very hard in that. Maybe not good, but maybe just being nice. I don't know. But what is he saying? Your faith is like the demon's faith in that it is a verbal faith only. Remember Jesus' ministry? He's walking around healing people. And for so long, who are the only people who knew who he was? The demons. They're, they're yelling out about, we know who you are. You're the son of God. Right? We, we know who you are. Right? But they didn't care about Jesus. And you know, there's lots of people like that. They know a lot about Jesus but they don't care about them. 
They went to, maybe they went to church as a kid. There was a guy who, who, I, who I used to know. He's now passed away, and, and he was about my age. And, and, and he said, you know, I grew up in church. You know, I got the man upstairs number. I'm like, well, you better call quickly, dude. A lot of people know about Jesus, but they don't care about him. It's been well said the demons have good theology, but their theology clearly doesn't have them. It doesn't, it doesn't do us any good to know a lot about Jesus, but not know Jesus. And, and this gets really bad in church. Probably less so in a church like ours, although we have to be careful of it. Because over time, in most of the churches in where, the area where we live, if you're watching from outside our area, in the churches where we live, there is this thing we call the clergy-laity division. So you got the clergy over here, and you have the, uh, the laity over here. That's why people say to me, oh, do, do you want a clergy? I, you know, I go into a hospital or something like that, and they're like, you should have a, where, you know, where'd you park? And I tell them, what'd you park all the way there for, man? You should be right up front, man, clergy only. We could get you some clergy license plates or clergy markers for your car for this hospital or something like that. I'm like, I don't want that. I don't want that. I don't want, I don't want special treatment. I'm just a dude. I, I, I want everybody, I, I, we train the people in our church to do hospital visits. We don't, we don't want that division, and I think that division is complete poison. It's absolute poison. Because the people who are the proponents of it think that it, it absolves them, if their laity means lay people, not clergy, it absolves them from serving God. No Christian is absor absolved from serving God. None. None. There's no such thing, asked James. No such thing. And what does it do also? Well, if they're doing all the work, it lets the clergy get away with murder. People believe whatever they, whatever they say. And this has weakened the church. And I hate to say it, it has demonically empowered many of the clergy to be unaccountable. It's wrong. It's wrong. My hope and prayer is that all of this would change us and stop us from accepting any form of nominalism in our lives. You see, I know you're like, oh, I don't want to make people upset. Like, I'm not sending this one to my friend, Pastor Jim, because you know, Sunday's very encouraging. Wednesday's, I don't know. But we don't love people if we don't challenge them in their involvement of the things of God. We don't love other able-bodied Christians in our church if, if we don't invite them to be motivated by grace to serve the kingdom. You say, well, I, I do want to ask people, but you know, everybody's just so busy. Really, why does that always have to end the conversation? Why can't being too busy for God, why can't being too busy for Jesus begin the conversation instead of end the conversation? Now, verse 20, again, another conclusion summary looking ahead to what we'll do next week. We'll just fit a little bit in. We'll, we'll, we'll begin here next week. James can feel the pushback. I can feel the pushback. It's coming through the screen. I can feel it. And he says, But do you want to know, O foolish man, that faith without works is dead? In other words, that type of faith is not a byproduct of a new life in Christ. One of the big purposes of faith is not just this head knowledge. It's good to have head knowledge. But one of the big purposes of faith is for the Word of God to grow in us, to conform us, as the Scripture says, into the image of Christ. Any kind of faith that does not move us in that direction, 
And I'm actually going to be very bold about this. If the church that you attend is not moving you in the direction of being conformed into the image of Christ, you need to get out of there. Because any faith that is not moved in that direction is not true faith. It is faith in name only. Now, notice the term James uses here. Oh, foolish man. Is it possible that he's saying to a man of an empty faith or a whole church or a group of people in a church of an empty faith, don't you see what's going on? Don't you see the danger of having, saying you have faith and having no works or saying you have works and having no faith? Don't you see the danger? Both are necessary. Such kind of faith is dead. It is, it is useless religious activity without the Holy Spirit changing you from the inside out at all. What's really scary to me about this is what actually going back to verse 19 is he said the demons tremble and the demon or the demons shudder but so many church people don't so many unbelieving people are completely unaware so many people possess a counterfeit faith Remember, Jesus said, they're going to say, but Lord, Lord, he's going to go, I never knew you. They don't stop to think. People don't stop to think, is their profession of faith credible or not? Well, this is bad news. I, I, I understand you might be like, this has been bad news. Next week, the news gets better as we see how a new life flows out of a new heart. You say, well, how do I get this new heart? If good works don't save us from our sins, how do we, how do we get it? Your good works don't save you from your sins, but somebody else's good work saves you from your sins. Only through faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ can we get this new life in Christ. We trust in Jesus God become a man, his perfect life, his death on the cross in our place, his rising from the dead to give us new life. And with the new life that he gives us, the spirit of Christ comes to live inside of us when we put our trust in Jesus. With the new life that he gives us, it also gives us what? Ephesians 2.10, new kingdom work. So God will no longer count your sins against you because you've put your trust in Christ, but he will count your good works as being for you because you are a child of the living God. So some of us tonight need to put our trust in Jesus for the first time. We just need to. We know, we, it's, we know being a good person is not going to get you anywhere. It's not going to get you to heaven. You need to put your trust in Jesus and that's how you get there. Turn to him. Tell him you're sorry for your sins. Tell him you're sorry for your unbelief. But now you're turning to him with every intention to change and you're going to put your trust in Jesus instead of yourself. But you'll still fail. That's okay. You confess your sins. And God will forgive you. Some of us need to take a step of faith. Some of us need to say, you know what? I, 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 this faith is real and I want to put some legs on it. I want to start living it. I'm going to start looking for opportunities that are put in my path that God has prepared beforehand in advance that I should walk in them, that I should do them. And I'm going to start serving God and serving people even people that I don't know. Maybe I'm going to start serving and asking maybe, you know, now or when things get a little bit better health-wise in the U.S., what are some ways that I can help serve the body of Christ in the church? You see, because 
when you look at the cross and when you see Jesus serving you on the cross, people of faith, their affections are drawn to him. Like Job said, though he slay me, I will trust him. Though he slay me, I will serve him. And as he draws us in faith to himself, we will serve him. And we will be people of faith. And we will be people of works. Working together to show that God has done a miraculous work in our hearts. Well, let's bow our heads and pray.